I'm excited to welcome this week's Tierra Talk Show guest, former senior concept designer for Walt Disney Imagineering, Karen Conley Armitage. It's so lovely to have you on the show today, Karen. So thank you for coming, coming on board. <laughs> well, thank you, Tierra. I really am quite humbled being asked um, to join you. And um, this, this is a first kind of experience of something like this for me. So um, uh, here goes. <laughs> Don't worry. We'll, we'll, we'll softly jump in here. Because for me, I, when I was reading more about you, um, you know, as a kid, I would be obsessed with watching Imagineering documentaries that they would have on Disney Channel, or on VHS tape. And and my dad was somebody who collected Disney books. So I would kind of go through these books and see all of these wonderful people working on attractions. So, um, so to be able to see the attractions that you um, had your little touch on is, is pretty amazing, because you had 26 years with Disney, right. correct? Right. right. What right. was what was like one of your first projects for them? Um. I got to California from St. Louis, although I am originally an East Coast gal, New England gal, but um, I got to uh, Glendale in um, the very end of March, very beginning of April of 1977, and uh, Disney had moved me. I had previously... Um, been working in St. Louis for a small design company called Larkins Associates. I was hired by Grady Larkins, the owner of the company, to help him uh, um, and his very small team. They had been hired by Anheuser-Busch to develop all the interiors and a lot of the propping and staging for the new Anheuser-Busch Park called the Old Country in Williamsburg, Virginia. And I had originally, I was originally trained as a scenic designer, scenic and costume designer for the theater, um, having uh, gotten my MFA from uh, the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And um, Grady knew some people at uh, Wisconsin, and he had been hired to do scenery for the Nutcracker and needed painters. Um, so uh, because my family was in the Boston area and um, I was in Madison, Wisconsin, I I didn't go home very often. Um, the weather, especially between, you know, ha Halloween and like the first of April, because the weather's pretty rough and I didn't have a lot of money and my parents didn't have a lot of money. So uh, I was contacted by a couple of my professors and said, look, this guy needs help painting scenery for the Nutcracker. And so I did that with uh, another gal. And he eventually he said to me, if you don't go off and teach, give me a call. I might hire you. And so I did. And that's how I ended up. Uh, my first theme park was not a Disney theme park. It was the old country in Williamsburg, Virginia, and a little bit on the Tampa Park, um, which originally, you couldn't call it this now, it was origin originally called the Dark Continent because it was um, 
kind of themed around Africa because of all the wild animals they had down there. The head of architecture and the head of chaussette design, George Windrum, and the head of interiors at that time, Eric Weston, um, uh, they all came out and saw my portfolio. So I had a, a theme park book of work that I'd done, and I had a theater book of work that I'd done. And um, they, for all intents and purposes, hired me on the spot. And um, so they were aware that I could build models, I could draft and get things built, I could illustrate, um, I could do rough concepts, I could do um, uh, pretty good, you know, good interiors packages. And so they didn't know where to put me. I was thinking I'd probably end up in the interiors department. But um, uh, no, they uh, put me in show design at that particular time. And so they put me on two separate kind of uh, assignment tracks at the same time. One was rehabs for lessees at Disneyland and Walt Disney World. And the other was uh, um, concepts um, for marketing for a lot of the shops and restaurants for World Showcase. So that's, um, um, I was more in the facility end rather than in the um, ride show end. Um, simp but I was used a lot in the ride show end. Um, and I, I was just used all over the place. I mean, it, 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 it didn't matter to me, you know, as long as I was helping out the team and, and all kinds of things. And, um, so the first, the very first job that came to fruition for me was a Disneyland rehab of, of what had originally been a coffee house. Um, and they introduced me to a woman by the name of Dorothea Redman, whom at the time I had no idea. Dorothea Redman was the first female continuity artist hired in Hollywood. And she was hired by David Old Selznick for a film that he was putting together. Um, and a, I don't know if you know what a continuity artist is, but a lot of directors and production designers use them. They get a script and these the continuity artist is works with the director and it's like they illustrate very quickly the character and the angle of the shot. So when all the continuity sketches are all put together for a major film, it not only shows um, uh, sort of the sequence of how the film is going to go, but there's the director can look at the continuity of the the tone because most of these rough sketches um, 
although Dorothea's weren't rough at all. She's an incredible watercolorist. So you you had how the camera was going to shoot certain scenes, the color quality of it. Um, you could get the idea of how the lighting and, and how, see the director before he even shoots, can figure out how he's going to stage the entire film. So Dorothea was hired for Gone with the Wind, <laughs> a little film. And her continuity sketches for Gone with the Wind are world famous. Um, she in, And she did most of the original concepts for New Orleans Square. Um, she worked with Herbie Ryman and the architects and everything else like that. And they would call her in from time to time to work on these rehabs for Disneyland, for instance, she's the one that for Coke Corner first had them paint that ceiling the Coke red color. Um, so anyway, they uh, saw my um, uh, illustrations and I worked a lot in watercolor. And so they put me with Dorothea for a couple of years and she would just coach me what was Disney and what wasn't. So it was an incredible mentoring process. I mean, and she she was old Hollywood man. She was elegant, beautiful, unbelievable knowledge of period architecture and and you know what you could cheat with and what you couldn't cheat with unbelievable eye for color. So anyway, she was um, something phenomenal. And I just took that, what I was learning from her, because she was also in there doing marketing sketches for um, uh, World Showcase. And um, so anyway, like a marketing sketch would be, they, for instance, in the German pavilion, um, the guys that were um, in charge of trying to sell this to different countries, they somebody thought, well, we could have a Steiff animal shop in, in the German pavilion. Steiff animals, stuffed animals are still to this day very, you know, precious and beautiful and gorgeous, very high quality. So um, I worked with the... Um, overall concept designer for the German pavilion at that time. And this was before it evolved into, into being what it looks like today. It had back then it had more, more of a contemporary feel to it. The whole, both future world and world showcase um, uh, and all the pavilion, all the, the country quote unquote pavilions at that time were tighter together, more, more kind of like a true strand of pearls, a true ring of pearls. In fact, that they were all more or less connected physically. And there, so there was a contemporary feel. And I did a Steiff animal shop uh, for Harper Goff. Harper Goff was the original um, uh, overall concept person not only for World Showcase, but like the German Pavilion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I was going, um, I was working on um, helping concept different uh, interiors. Um, and also because I had a theater background, they put me 
on a lot of the shows, especially in World Showcase, that um, had a theater in it. So, for instance, um, they wanted me to do the theater interior for The American Adventure. Just that Barbara Whiteman uh, um, did the interior for the whole pavilion, but I, I was assigned the theater because it had, and also the curtain and everything, because it had to work with the show. And um, uh, there weren't too many people, in fact, well, there weren't too many people at all who understood even the language of theater and the kinds of, of masking that they would need and just on and on and on. And at the same time, um, um, I worked um, on the French Pavilion Theater, which had the 270 degree, um, instead of being a circle vision, it was 270 degrees. And Harry Webster was the overall architect of that pavilion, but I developed that theater. Um, and I remember um, when I was showing uh, uh, an illustration that I did of that theater and John Hench, who I don't know if I'm, I hopefully a lot of the people that listen to you uh, recall that name. He was um, very much in upper, upper, upper management at WED um, and all colors and materials had to be approved by him. And I'd already gotten the blessing on the uh, American Adventure Theater. And so I took the French Film Theater in there and uh, Harry Webster was with me. And John looked at me and he said, you've got, you don't have a red curtain in here. And I said, a red curtain? Because I had painted it uh, uh, like a, um, I called it the color of French burgundy. And um, it was a deep wine burgundy color. So a little bit purple, a little bit red with a lot of with some gold on it. And I said, red. And he said, yes, you did such a beautiful red Austrian uh, drape for the um, American adventure. And all of a sudden it dawned on me what he was talking about. And I, I listened to him and I listened to him and I said, can I ask a question? And he said, sure. And I said, all right, I understand you want even though the colors of the French flag are also red, white, and blue, wouldn't it serve our guests better that the palette for the French theater is different than the palette for the American theater? And he looked at me and I said, I wanted this curtain to be reminiscent of French Burgundy, the so delicious that you can almost taste the color of the wine. And I remember Hench sat there and he would he would he'd have this serious look on his face, and then you could start seeing it at the corner of his eyes, 
and his little mouth would, his mouth would like just, he'd fight not smiling is what would be happening and everything. And I remember I saw that coming and I just looked away and I said, I, I just, we're, I'm trying to go a little bit more European. And he sat there and he says, well, I guess that would work. <laughs> so we got this <laughs> burgundy drape. And several years later, when Imagineering did a huge retrospective of, of all of his work um, in one of the uh, presentation areas at Imagineering. It was actually on the walls of the what's called the Big D, which was the commissary there. And he was he asked to pick um, some other people's artwork that he felt um, uh, that he had helped them develop. In other words, and he picked my interior rendering of the French film theater. <laughs> That's I was thrilled. I <laughs> so anyway, it was it, and that was right. Like I agree with you on that part. You were going for a different theme, a different look, and if you have every theater be the same setup and visual it's going to it's going to be a little bit boring for the person who goes in there it's like oh well we already saw this yeah yeah or or granted the film and the show was completely different you know oh my gosh yes if you're back at home and you're going well we saw that you know it was the theater that had you know, this, this, and that, and da-da-da-da-da. And if the other theater is slightly close, they're like, I can't remember where it was, you know? Here's a little story. When when I was originally in the middle of that assignment, and um, because it's such a huge voluminous space, um, you know, I had, I, with the help of... Uh, some other folks in interiors and see I was not in interior in the interiors department at that time I was still in show design um we um uh got some uh wall coverings vinyl wall coverings and perforated them and had a pattern printed on top and they were over acoustical material inside all the paneling on the walls in that theater we had to do that. Otherwise the sound just would have been horrific. And, um, so we got that done and then it was, um, uh, um, there was a huge discussion about what the carpet in the aisles would be for, because it was obvious it needed to be a pattern, um, because you can cover up wear and tear in a pattern far more easily than you can cover, you know, if it's just one color. Um, And that was always kind of a cardinal rule. If you were doing a a carpet in a show space, it had to have some kind of pattern themed, whatever. And uh, my dad um, was uh, a director of athletics and at school, my dad was a teacher 
and um, he was a great athlete. Um, and so we ended up teaching at um, these two boys' uh, private schools, which is how I was raised. I was raised around only guys, okay, um, except for my two younger sisters. And um, I always thought that was humorous. He was also a history teacher. And one of the beginning things, I mean, I went to a public school, but I would always, you know, ask him about some of my history assignments and stuff like that. I mean, my mom was a librarian, so um, I had, you know, mentors at home. And um, one of the first things my dad did I think I was in grammar school. He gave me a little book on Monticello, the Thomas Jefferson thing. And um, I read it and I was totally fascinated by this guy who was like our third president. And one of the things he did in his travels to Europe, especially France, is he learned classically in a lot of the very elegant buildings that when they would do carpet on the floor, they would take the shadow pattern from the cornice and make it a graphic design in the carpet, like in the border, so that the flooring, albeit a different material, in many instances was a reflection of what was going on on the ceiling. And I just thought that was really cool. And I went to the architect and told him, you know, I want to do this pattern. And he said, how the hell are you going to do that? And I said, I, I need um, your big drawings of the cornice in that theater. So he gave them to me and um, I sat down and just made a two-dimensional, very graphic sketch and figured out, you know, that would be the border. And then there was a huge diagonal thing on the floor. And I forget what, what was in the middle of it, eagles and bells. And, you know, it was supposed to look very, very American. But, and that was done by a company called Ulster Carpets, who were on the very southern border of um, Northern Ireland. And when the reps came to, um, you know, pick up the drawings and stuff like that, because they were going to do us a sample, I asked them where about in Ulster their, their uh, factory was. And um, this is long before Google Earth or anything else like that. And um, I had a map with me. And um, so they, sh I hauled it, you know, hauled it out and everything. And I said, okay, here's Ulster. Where about is your factory? And they kind of looked at me and I said, why are you asking? I said, I'm just curious. That's all. And so they showed me, you know, and I said, well, if you go south and to the east, you'll come to Castle Blaney. And they went, oh, we know that well. We know that well. 
And I said, and my last name is, and they went, Con, are you the Conleys from Castle Blaney? I said, absolutely. I said, my grandfather came. And um, they just laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed. And so the, I don't, I, we never followed up on any of this, but they suspected that they knew, you know, distant members of my Irish Conley family. So I always thought that that was kind of interesting that I got to design this carpet, which was such fun. And lo and behold, it was built in a factory and shipped to Florida from a town very near where my entire ancestral heritage comes from. Isn't what are cool? the odds of that? You know what, what I mean? <laughs> odds of that? I know. I know. Did, I know. did they keep, so you're saying that they changed the carpet design for, for the American adventure later on? Like what we see now is not what it originally it was? I'm, I suspect that. I don't know that for sure. But those carpets, because they have thousands of people walking, walking on them. over yeah. them. I mean, it's worse traffic than a major, major international airport. One of the things I love to talk about on the show, because we've highlighted it so many times with wonderful guests, is the American adventure. So the way, just to explain to our audience, um, back in July, on July 4th, um, I had one these wonderful photos of the of the, the team that actually came together to pose for all of the statues that you see in the American Adventure, thanks to Jane Jackson, um, who was also an Imagineer on the project. It went viral, and it was really interesting because I really didn't know anything about each person that the photos and the statues were based off of. So that's when I started digging. And that's when I found you, Karen, because your husband was Frank Armitage, and he worked as a show designer. So did you meet on this specific project? Or had you no. met prior to that? Um, Because in 1977, 78, Frank had... Frank had left, Frank was originally at the studio from about 1951 to right after Kennedy was assassinated. So that would put it late 63, early 64. But he left, you know, um, the studio shortly thereafter because he'd gotten very interested in anatomy and was going over to UCLA and they these these illustrations of various um, uh, uh, brain anatomy, various eye anatomy, ear anatomy, on and on and on. And during that time is when mid-70s, he got a call from um, uh, Disney, the background department, saying that they needed help with backgrounds for a little film called The Rescuers, and could he come and help them out? Meanwhile, at WED, the um, powers that be, they were talking about the Life and Health Pavilion. And so they called Frank, pitched him the idea that they wanted to do a ride through the body. And he started in 77, a week before I started on the 4th of April. 
we never worked on the same project, you know, and we'd say hi. And then he vanished. And I heard that he was in the hospital uh, and had gone through open heart surgery at the age of like 56. I went over with a bunch of Imagineers to the hospital that he was recovering in. Three or four weeks later, he was coming up a staircase and I was coming down a staircase and the same staircase. And I I just saw him. He was looking down and I went, oh, my God, Frank, you're back. And I just scuttled down the staircase and I threw my arms around him and gave him a big hug. And I said, it's so good to see you. And so he I didn't even notice that he told me later that it was one of the best hugs he'd ever gotten. And it kind of made him blush a little bit. Gosh, it was probably a couple of years later. I think it was like 1980. I was just chit-chatting with him in the hallway. And he said, you want to go to lunch? I said, oh, gosh, no, I can't. Uh, I was uh, uh, really, I became very good friends with Doris Hardoon. And we were sitting in her uh, apartment one weekend. And um, I said, are you seeing anybody? And she goes, no. And she said, are you? said, not really. And she said, I would just like somebody, a nice guy to go to lunch with. And I said, well, who would you want to go to lunch with? So we, she sat on one side of the room and I sat on the other side of the room and we made a list of one through 10 of 10 guys. Didn't matter if they were, uh, dating someone, at least in our, you know, we weren't looking for romance or anything else like that. We just wanted somebody interesting to go to lunch with. Um, so we made a list of all of these guys. Okay. And, um, the first name on both of our lists without even talking was Frank Armitage. So we developed a, um, certificate and named it Man of the Week. You couldn't do this now. Monday morning, we went in and went up to Frank's office and gave him the certificate and said, your prize is that Doris and I are going to take you to lunch on Friday. And he goes, really? We didn't know that he wasn't there on Friday. And he said, well, I'll have to stick around for that. And so we took him to lunch. I think we went to Marie Callender's. I mean, you know, really she, she. And um, uh, Doris drove her big honking Cadillac. And we had a great time. And it was about two weeks after that, Frank called me up and he said, you want to go grab some Thai food? I said, sure. And that's the way it started. We started going to lunch once a week. I love hearing stories about people who get to, you know, fall in love at work. I think it's so cute. <laughs> when we did announce that we were getting married, people were flabbergasted. Absolutely flabbergasted. Why? Um, first of all, they had no idea that we had that kind of relationship, which I was surprised at because we weren't really hiding anything. But Frank was 23 years my senior. And 
uh, it just floored people. And there were a lot of people that were really, really, really upset. I, I remember um, uh, one of his very, very good friends, um, Walt Paragoy, who they were almost like brothers. And Walt had a very acid, acerbic kind of character about him. But you got the feeling in chit-chatting with him that there was this bitterness that he could not shake. And um, uh, he was, he, for me, he was a difficult energy to be around, although I, he was an incredible artist and he was a good friend of Frank's. Walt came running into my office and stood on the other side of my drawing board and everything. And he said at the top of his voice, so everybody could hear, what the hell do you think you're doing? And I thought to myself, okay, I'm not sure where this is going. And I put my paintbrush down or whatever I was doing. And I looked at him. I went out and stood right next to him. And I said, well, what are you so upset about? What, what is it that I've done that's upset you so much? And he said, you can't marry Frank. You cannot marry Frank. This is about a month before the wedding. And I said, okay. He said, you just don't understand. You're just being too stupid and naive. You can't marry him. And I said, well, can you give me a reason from your point of view? And he said, you have to understand that Frank's the kind of guy that'll jump off a diving board before he checks whether or not there's water in the pool. And I, and Walt was shaking. So I put out, put out my arms. I gave him a big hug and I said, Walt, rest assured, he now has somebody who will always make sure there's water in the pool. So anyway, enough of that. <laughs> what else do you want to know? <laughs> well, one of the, one of the other things I love to highlight is MGM Studios, you know, before it became Disney's Hollywood Studios and there was so much going on during that time and I think the park was hyped up to be, you know, a working studio which it was for for a while. So, what specifically did you work on for the studios? Well, I was part of the original concept team. Uh there were a group of us it was the Kirk brothers, Rick Rothschild, Bob Weiss, Chris Carradine, Michael Eisner, and Frank Wells had just come on board, you know, within six months or so, three to six months or so. And we got the assignment to not tell anybody because <laughs> they were still laying people off, I think, Um but we got the assignment that Eisner and Wells wanted a new pavilion for Future World. And they wanted an entertainment pavilion. Oh, I think Trevor Bryant was in that group also. We kind of put this together. And Bob Weiss kind of rose to the, the leadership position. And um, we came up with this entertainment pavilion for Epcot Center. And it had the movie ride. It had um, the restaurant with the TVs in it. Um, God, I can't remember all of that. There was a lot of stuff. Okay. And so Weiss pitched it to Eisner and Wells. 
And um, by the end of it, the story goes, um, and this is only what I recall. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. But the story goes, Eisner and Wells looked at each other and said, this isn't a pavilion for Future World. This is a whole new theme park. And that's how Studio Tours got born. But anyway, my job was to lay out the movie ride with all the um, hijackings in it. It was basically a flat ride. It didn't have any ups or downs or anything else like that. But um, I worked with a couple of the ride guys, engineers. And um, so I worked on that. I specifically designed and built the model for Gangster Street. And Frank did the original illustration for Gangster Street. He did that before I built the model. Um, but that was totally handled by Bob Weiss. So even though Frank and I were married and we were at the time and we were technically working off of the same job number, we didn't have anything to do with each other, you know, so it was legitimate. And so I built the model um, in half inch scale models, ride models were usually built in inch scale and it was just too big for my little desk in the model shop. I literally moved to the model shop to do it. And I used some theater techniques in um, painting the thing because um, it was very important that um, Gangster Street really looked like it came out of the film noir, you know, which were all the black and white films. So rather than painting the model black and white, I painted it with colors that when I laid them on top of each other, they didn't go to mud, but came off as various shades of warm gray, cool gray. Um, and I actually didn't really use any black painting the entire model. I used, you know, dark, dark purples and dark blues. And because when the scene was lit, you could get a really thick atmosphere because it was color that the lighting was bouncing off of and not black mixed with white. And and also I want to I want to mention before we kind of close out that you said that you're working on a special project that's featuring the women of Imagineering. So I really would love to hear a little bit more about this because it's the first time I've heard about it. So oh, All right. Actually, this is the brainchild of a gal by the name of Ellie Erlinson, who I first met in when I first came in 77, 78. Um, she's an architect. She's an incredible architect. She at present time, she's retired. Um, both she and her husband, she's married to Earl, uh, uh, Ed Erlinson. Um, and he is also an architect. And um, they are in Hong Kong right now. They uh, uh, hired Ed out of retirement to help finish the rehab on the castle over there. And, of course, 
This was before anybody ever heard of, well, it was right before anybody had heard of COVID. And so they've not ventured back here too often, but as whether you may or may not know, um, uh, Hong Kong opened and then it had to shut back down again. And I don't think it's reopened yet. But um, anyway, that being said, um, Ellie went over there just as a wife this time. She's quite a painter, uh, um, watercolors. Um, and she also does um, oils, I think. And she's over there painting and just having a great time. Anyway, she was a major architect on the Shanghai project and also on Hong Kong. Anyway, she had this idea uh, about celebrating a certain segment of women from Imagineering, sort of her generation. Um, she's, I think she's a little bit younger than me, but not much. Now I will be 73 next week. So all of us are between the ages of 67, 68. She wanted, um, a group of women who had been consistently at Imagineering for no less than 25 years, but now retired. So it's the transition from the Mad Men era, if you will, into a time now where, well, you can follow the sort of this kind of shared struggle the 12 of us went through um, as we came from behind the scenes and because of our various talents and um, personal accomplishments, we started to become more visible and perceptively more powerful. And that did cause a ripple through the company. And the book was originally supposed to come out this October. But because of the whole COVID thing, um, it is not coming out until uh, the October, like October 20th something of 2021. But the name of the book is um, Women of Imagineering, 12 Careers, 12 Theme Parks, Countless Stories. Here are 12 different stories of people who found their their own way, women who found their own way, they ran into their own struggles and this is how they uh, solved them. And honestly, I wish I had had this as a kid growing up because I always wanted to know how as a kid I could do something like this too. I wanted to, to work in Imagineering. I still do. And I think that this will be a wonderful eye-opener and a wonderful way to highlight the female voice in Imagineering because we hear a lot about so many different individuals. But for me personally, I don't think we hear much from the female voice and perspective of things. So I'm really excited. Did they tell you they're they're hoping for maybe a 2021 release or when should we yeah. kind of look out for it? Well, it's supposed to debut at the D23 convention if it's held in 21. Um, Let's hope it does. And if yeah. not, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm still going to be getting a copy and 
hey, maybe we can do another conversation again with you and the the rest of the team who are working on this book. Absolutely. And and before we end our interview, I have three Disney themed questions. I almost forgot to ask them, but okay. I ask okay. them to every guest. <laughs> okay. Fire away. So our Donald question, as a child, what Disney film was one of your favorites to see in the movie theater? Lady and the Tramp. Our goofy question, what Disney character do you think would be your best friend if you met them in person? The little female fox from The Fox and the Hound. And I say that simply because one of the first people I met at WED was Mark Davis. And after about three months, he looked at me one day and he said, you remind me so much of that little fox in Fox and the Hound, that little female. He said, <laughs> you're just a little, you're, you're quiet, you're shy, but you're a little firecracker. <laughs> and, if, and, and if it wasn't that, it would be Tinkerbell. And our Mickey question, if I asked you to name any Disney song at this very moment, what immediately comes to mind? When You Wish Upon a Star. Karen, yeah. I can't thank you enough for being on the show today because okay. these are such wonderful stories. And we have other, I know we have a lot of younger listeners, so I'm sure they're going to be absorbing it as much as I did today, too. So uh, I cannot wait to to share this with everyone. So thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much. This was quite an honor. And um, oh, my gosh, um, couldn't believe how fast my mind was racing. Um, so thank you. I... You made it out alive. I promised. Remember? <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Hooray for 